0: Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly non-fiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a book riot podcast and is hosted by me, Alice Burton, and fellow rioter Kim Yukara. We're recording on Tuesday, September 20th. Hello, Kim.
1: Hello, Alice. How are you today?
0: Um, I'm kind of feeling the fallness of things, mm-hmm. which I'm really mm-hmm. excited about. Uh, yeah. isn't official fall in, like, a day or something? It's soon. It's soon. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, just think, I've been seeing, like, autumnal color palettes. Mm, and mm-hmm. we have some, like, we have some, uh, nature near us that it consists of, like, a lot of, um, like, not only flowers, but just, like, a lot of plants, like, Midwestern plants. And mm-hmm. they have been like goldenrod and like this sort of like Mm -hmm. just fallish red orange and like all this stuff and so my wife and I were walking down the path by it and I was just like oh my gosh fall colors (laughs) which it's just exciting to see the seasons change not to be a cliche of a person but yes winter is hard and (laughs) don't really like it but it's just nice especially if you live near nature to like start paying attention to when things change and like what's happening with those mm-hmm. and like the, when the different birds are coming in. like the geese are gone the geese left i just saw a meme
1: this week that was something about like people going from like not caring about birds to being deeply invested in birds and you have just like epitomized that for
0: me That's so funny because <laughs> my wife michelle uh she she sent me that meme <laughs> she was like this is you <laughs> No, because we literally, we walked down the path. I was looking at the water because we live near some water and because it's Chicago and everyone does. And I was like, wait a minute. I I saw geese flying in a formation when we were driving back from St. Louis this weekend. And I don't see any of them in the water. And they've been in the water all summer. And I only see ducks. Oh my gosh. So the geese have left. We only have the ducks who are so funny because they literally will go quack, 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 (laughs) (laughs) This is extremely high
1: quality podcast content.
0: I know. I'm also taking a class on how to identify trees. It's online and I'm really excited about it. I've only taken one class so far. So I just keep telling people that the inside of the tree, like the middle of the tree is dead and that's heartwood. And the outside of the tree is the living part and that's why you don't Want to carve your initials in a tree because you were harming the tree, much like Krista said in Fern Gully. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember that? I, I do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's great. Fantastic. What are your thoughts about trees? <laughs>
1: I don't really have a lot of thoughts about trees, but I was going to say my sister and I have been really like leaning into the fallness of things by buying every fall flavored uh, food item that we can find at the various grocery stores that we shop at. So nice. uh, we made a special trip to Trader Joe's just to buy a bunch of the fall stuff, you know, at Target and Cub and Ivy where we walk around. All of the fall foods. So now we have a like a dining table, which we never used to dine. Like we just eat in front of the TV all the time. But the whole dining table is just covered with fall uh, flavored foods.
0: Do you know why it's exciting? I have a theory about this. We used to live by seasonal foods. And then came a time where we can just get almost anything we want, not just mm-hmm. food-wise, but just in life by ordering it online or just like whatever. You can just get most things easily. Mm-hmm. But with seasonal items, mm-hmm. you got a narrow window. And especially yeah. with food, it's going to go bad unless it's, you know, like chemical food. But mm-hmm. and then you just then it's gone. So you can only enjoy it during a specific window. And that makes it special and fun.
1: It does. Yes. It's a fun like it's, it's nice to mark the changing of the seasons in some ways, even if it's just about the food that you're consuming so
0: yeah I cannot tell you how many hand gestures I have been using while talking this entire time (laughs) and it's sad that people cannot see them but also we're not moving to a video podcast
1: no that would be terrible
0: (laughs) and let's just take a little brief break here and hear from our sponsor another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where Bank of America can help
1: Alright, so with that, we're going to jump into nonfiction in the news. Uh, we actually have a few this week, uh, some, a couple of ones about prizes and then uh, a very exciting book announcement. So the first one is, uh, a prize announcement. Uh, Grey Wolf Press, uh, which is a local press in Minnesota, one of my very favorites, uh, gives out an annual nonfiction prize, and, uh, they announced this week the winner. It is, uh, Pujang Macha People by Jung Hae-she, which was selected, uh, from a pool of 750 applicants. So, uh, this book is a memoir that, quote, explores the idea of matrilineal inheritance of Han in the Korean diaspora. Uh, So it is a collection of essays built from memory and meditative inquiry, and it centers on the lives of ordinary Korean women and mothers of post-war diasporic households. I don't really know much more about it than that. We'll link to the press release where they announced the winner, but um, I reliably love the Grail of Press Nonfiction Prize winners. There have been some just really stellar ones, and so I am excited. I think this one will be out in a couple of years, right, because they award the prize and then the book goes through a whole uh, process to be published. But uh, I always look forward to seeing that. Um, and then the second uh, prize announcement we have is that the long lists for the National Book Awards have been announced. Uh, so they announce a long list of 10 books in the various categories. So uh, they have the nonfiction list, which... Uh, I am scrolling through this article to try and get to it because it was very long, so I will list the announcement, but the long-listed books are Bright Unbearable Reality Essays by Anna Botkin, Ted Kennedy, A Life by John Farrell, Uncommon Measure, A Journey Through Music, Performance, and the Science of Time by Natalie Hodges, Bad Mexicans, Race, Empire, and Revolution in the Borderlands by Kelly Lytle-Hernandez, which actually we're going to talk about a little bit later in the episode. The Invisible Kingdom, Reimagining Chronic Illness by Megan O'Rourke, South to America, A Journey Below the Mason-Dixon to Understand the Soul of a Nation, Breathless, The Scientific Race to Defeat a Deadly Virus by David Quammen, The Man Who Could Move Clouds, a memoir by Ingrid Rojas-Contreras, and uh, His Name Was George Floyd, One Man's Life and the Struggle for Racial Justice by Robert Samuels and Toulouse Olorotopea, And Lost and Found, a memoir by Katherine Schultz. So that is, as usual, like an amazing long list of books, I think.
0: Yeah, Ted Kennedy, a life kind of threw me. Yeah.
1: That is the one that sticks out as being like, oh, okay, I guess we're doing that. (laughs) But the other, I don't know, anything else like stick out to you?
0: I mean, it's... Hispanic Heritage Month, and there are some good Latinx authors in that, Mm -hmm. which is exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, One of whom you are going to talk about later, but as you mentioned. But um, no. (laughs) I was just (laughs) thinking through them. I was like, I haven't really read many of those. Yeah,
1: I was going to say I I have not read any of them fully. I've read parts of several, but it definitely – Makes me want to pick them back up. I'm trying to look. They're going to announce the the winners will be announced uh, in November. So we will know uh, for sure the winner then.
0: So stay tuned. Uh, and let's talk about our last piece of news, which is very exciting. It's that uh-huh. Samantha Irby is going to have a new book coming out. It's got a skunk on the cover and it's called Quietly Hostile. <laughs> 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 Gosh, delighted. I did not see when it's coming out. Are you aware May of 2023. Oh, fantastic. Okay, so we got a while to get get hyped about that. According to the publisher. Okay, so this is the this is the copy, right? Her teeth are poisoning her from inside her mouth and her diarrhea is back. She gets turned away from a restaurant for wearing ugly clothes. <laughs> she goes to therapy and tries out Lexapro, gets healed with Reiki, explores the power of crystals, and becomes addicted to QVC. So It sounds very good. (laughs) Yes. Uh, I am very excited and gosh, addiction. My mom got addicted to QVC. There was a show (laughs) called Quacker Factory. (laughs) She was every time Quacker Factory was on, my mom was there in front of the TV with her phone. That's amazing. Oh my gosh. So anyway, very excited about Samantha Irby's new book, Quietly Hostile, out next May. Yeah, it, and it
1: does have a skunk on the cover, and it's just is just like a skunk. It is a skunk like screaming, uh, which a lot of the essays about, or in the interview that we linked to, she talks about how like COVID inspired a lot of the essays, or like they were written during COVID times, and so like something about the image of a skunk screaming really like yes, that is twenty twenty.
0: <laughs> you're you're like I feel seen with the skunk that is very upset. Yeah, I wonder what sounds skunks make. I don't really want to know, honestly. <laughs>
1: I would prefer not to.
0: Fair. Okay. All right. So that's
1: some uh, nonfiction news. We'll have more about award winners in a few weeks and probably more book announcements and all of that. So uh, we will shift gears and jump into uh, new books. So this is a nonfiction that is out uh, coming soon that we're excited and want to talk to you about. So... Uh, my first pick is probably, like, right in my wheelhouse, and if you, like, saw this on a shelf, you'd be like, "I oh, yes, Kim would like to read that. Uh, it's called Listen, World, How the Intrepid Elise Robinson Became America's Most Well-Read Woman by Julia Shears and Allison Gilbert, which is out September 27th from Seal Press. Uh, and this book is a biography of Elsie Robinson, who is a newspaper columnist that uh, the authors argue you probably have never heard of. So... She was, uh, very famous in like the early 1900s. She, um, got her start writing for the newspaper around 1917. She was 35 years old. She was, uh, reeling from this scandalous divorce that she was a part of, and she, had no way after getting out of this uh, situation to support herself and her son. And so she wanted to become a writer, but she like didn't really know how to do that. Um, and so she um, moves to the Bay Area and then goes to the Oakland Tribune and is like, I want to write for you, and they hire her. And she goes on to become this nationally syndicated uh, newspaper columnist, read across the United States, was a household name during her time as a writer, She ran, her columns ran for over 30 years. She had millions of readers across the United States. And so um, this book is uh, the first biography of her. It is really delightful so far. I spent a lot of time reading it. it. I like it so much. I think my favorite thing about it so far is that they'll be like writing about Alcy and telling her story. And then they'll just throw in sections from her columns directly because she has, you know, like 30 years of her own writing plus a memoir plus I think a few other pieces. And so they're really like beautifully incorporating her own words into this story about her. And so like, in the parts about her childhood, talking about growing up in this sort of in-between place where she, her family lived kind of between a very, like, Affluent and comfortable area, and then like a very kind of decrepit area. They're just like bringing in her words about being a young girl in that situation, and I just love that use of her her voice in this story because they have so much of her voice to work with. So I'm really excited to see how that kind of evolves as the book continues. So that is "Listen, World: How the Intrepid Elsie Robinson Became America's Most Read Woman" by Julia Shears and Allison Gilbert. That sounds so good. Yeah, it's really fun. I like it so much.
0: Women's history. (laughs) Uh, Very, very pro that. So my first new pick is Ducks, Two Years in the Oil Sands by Kate Beaton. And if you say that Kate Beaton, yes, it is the cartoonist Kate Beaton, who uh, she did that book about like the fat pony that mm-hmm. I forget the name was it's just the princess on the pony. And she did Hark a Vagrant and is extremely good at being hilarious about Canadian history, which who knew <laughs> that anyone could do that. But she's also uh, she has some really great comics on the Bronte's. I could just go I have I have her various books because I love her so much. Ducks is uh, a instead of focusing on, you know, Canadian history at large, this is her own memoir um, about working in the Canadian oil sands in northern Canada when she was 21. This was about 15 years ago, which is bonkers that 2005 was over 15 years ago. But this is so – okay, so she's 21. She gets this job in order to help pay off her student loans and goes to this tiny town – Um, In Alberta, which if you are like me, you don't know where that is, but it's northern Canada. So it's already cold up there and then it's you get further north. This is not I wouldn't like just don't go in expecting normal Kate Beaton, you know, like Mm -hmm. this is her talking about a very dark time in her life and in a situation that was rife with sexism and just general misogyny she there were about so it's like 50 to 1 in terms of men versus women at these camps and she's also you know again she was 21 and just like experiencing it through that lens and so it's it's not only her own situation there, though, but also talking about the environmental ramifications of the work she was doing. And the title, Ducks, in case you are like me and very soft about animals being in danger, the title is because there are these things called, um, like, it's called, like, a tailings pond, which has, uh, it's like, a, it has hazardous waste in it and hundreds of ducks get caught in it. Aww. I know. So, and that's kind of, like, a moment, right, where she is realizing the, uh, like, has a very direct view of the consequences of the work they're mm-hmm. doing on their environment. I was going to say at large, but I guess it's, like, at small. Uh yeah. And then, but then, uh, consequently, thinking about it at large. It is very good. It is, you know, it's again, it's Kate Beaton. But, again, it, it j- just to emphasize that it's not, like, jokey fun times. It's, like... We're going to look at this very serious part of my life, but with it's obviously still Kate Beaton who's doing it. And so if you just love her voice and her as a person, then you will appreciate this. And um, and it's just I'm sure it was an extremely hard thing to create uh, because it is uh, about such serious things, both involving her personally and then just like this work she was doing that has these dramatic impacts and mm-hmm. especially go, like you know this was happening in 2005 and here we are almost two decades later and you know talking about the ramping up consequences of this kind of work so anyway um again i'm just uh, just a huge kate beaton fan so if if you feel like you can handle the ducks <laughs> um <laughs> being i was gonna say in danger but i guess it's just kind of screwed um then check out ducks two years in the oil sands by kate beaten
1: i really love when people do something like totally different from what you expect from them or like how you know them and that it's really excellent you know like that branching out so yes. i'm i'm really excited to talk about this one and i'm excited that it's been getting good good reviews and good praise because it's always cool when someone takes a risk like that
0: yeah it's getting like starred reviews and stuff so
1: yeah yeah very happy about that all right, so my next pick is uh, Runaway, Notes on the Mist That Made Me by Erin Keene, which uh, comes out September 27th from Belt Publishing. Erin Keane is the editor-in-chief at Salon, and this book is about her looking back at her parents' relationships as she grows older and learns more about them and their story. So in 1970, her mom uh, ran away from home. She was 13 years old, uh, and so then at that time she took on two different assumed identities, and she hitchhiked her way across the United States, kind of just living as kind of a a teenage runaway. And so um, when she was 15 years old, she met a man in New York City, and they got married. Uh, That man was 36 and is Keane's father. And so she opens the book by sort of talking about, like, this is my parents' story, and I've always been told kind of one version of it. But as I've gotten older and started to sort of think through my own, like, complicated relationships with complicated men, I want to see this story differently. And so the book is um, kind of a a memoir, uh, like digging a exploration of those ideas about men and women and their relationships with each other. And so she looks at her own story. She looks at like pop culture and like the kind of complicated, you know, questionable men like Woody Allen and like some of the movies and stuff that he has done Um she, there's a section about Star Wars and about like how women become visible in stories written by men and just just like a lot of really kind of interesting things, like a wide ranging look that kind of takes this personal story and then like pulls it out and pulls the threads in a bunch of different directions. And so a lot about like who tells stories and who gets to take ownership of them and how are we kind of having some reckoning moments with that I haven't read as much of this one as I have the other one, but it um, is really fascinating, the parts that I have, and I think it's a really interesting approach to this kind of a story, and I like kind of the the wide-ranging way that she's getting at some of these questions. So that is Runaway, Notes on the Mist That Made Me by Erin Keane.
0: That also sounds really good. Sounds
1: complicated.
0: Complicated indeed. Yeah, I feel bad that I have picked some sad books for new book time i usually try to balance it a little this one is not as sad though so let's talk about it it is brown and gay in la the lives of immigrant sons by anthony christian ocampo uh when i saw the cover for this i gasped and i don't quite know why i think i just really like the color palette or something. <laughs> it's very evocative for me. Um, it's just like palm trees, which, by the way, I learned from my tree class, are not a tree. Uh, but it's palm trees and just like a very, you know, as as indicated by the in LA thing, it's very LA sort of image. So, how appropriate. <laughs> um, Anthony Christian Ocampo is a professor of sociology. Uh, he is also a queer Filipino-American man and comes at this book. It's, it's with that identity and definitely telling personal stories but then also having interviewed a lot of cisgender gay men of color so some of them were also filipino uh, or and then some are from mexico some are from latin america almost all were born in the united states and all of them were were mainly raised in the united states so that he calls them you know second generation americans or immigrant, uh, gay men who were sort of, who grew up in Los Angeles, particularly in these immigrant communities that were very masculine focused, like, like in terms of performing masculinity, like that was, uh, valued and what it was like to be, say, like the only gay kid in your school, let alone the only, you know, gay kid of color and how you could create spaces or find spaces that made you feel like you fit in, where the ideal, right, in this, in Los Angeles, especially even in, like, the gay community, it was, like, this gay white man, which, did we talk, have we talked about the movie Fire Island before, right? Yes. Yeah, did you want, did you end up watching that or no? I have not watched it, no. There's just this whole, first of all, you should, it's so good, but there's, it addresses how gay male culture so sort of just like the toxic ways it can show itself where it is like a very much like a very fit white space mm, mm-hmm. and there's just not a lot of room for like other body types or other ethnicities and yeah so this it sort of reminds me of of that but you know in this book by a sociologist who has <laughs> done research but again is also sharing his story which is just like so fascinating and excited that this book is out so again that is brown and gay in la the lives of immigrant sons by anthony christian ocampo
1: that one sounds just very excellent and i like the combination of like personal experience and sociology and like bringing those together that's kind of one of my one of my favorite approaches
0: yeah and with that let's hear from our second sponsor
1: all right. So our theme for this week's episode is uh, Hispanic Heritage Month, which runs from September 15th to October 15th. Um, so we're going to talk about some books by Hispanic or Latinx authors that you might read to help celebrate. So um, my first pick is uh, In the Shadow of the Mountain, a memoir of courage by Silvia Vasquez Lovato. Uh, and this book is, it's so good. It's so good. So Sylvia Vesas Lovato uh, grew up in Peru. Uh, she her family was pretty well off but she had a uh, experience of childhood sexual abuse Uh, her father was also abusive um, so just a really kind of difficult childhood and so um, as an adult she was uh, a Latina successful Latina in like the tech world of Silicon Valley so like Publicly facing, she had this very successful life. But in private, she was really struggling. She was an alcoholic. She was hiding her sexuality from her family. Um, she was trying to repress all of the and ignore the abuse she had um, suffered as a child. And so uh, to try and like find herself, she started uh, doing mountain climbing. And so she, um, she fell in love with it and so decided that she was going to uh, try to climb the Seven Summits. And so in addition to that, she decided that she wanted to try to help other women who were survivors of sexual assault also climb a mountain. And so the book uh, is about her attempt to scale Everest first with as a guide for a small group of women uh, sexual assault survivors, and then uh, joining a um, climbing group at base camp and then climbing the summit with them so that she can have done the seven summits. It's so intense. So the book opens with like her sort of like in a very difficult um part of the ascent up to the summit. And then it backtracks to sort of tell her story of her childhood and the story of like preparing to climb Everest and bringing all of those things together. And the the writing is so evocative. I was just like gripped from the very first page. I do partially like I like mountain climbing stories, not because I'm ever going to do that, because I think it's like ridiculous when people do that and I love reading it um like a thing I will never ever ever do but then like the way she backs up and like writes about her childhood abuse is very um it's difficult to read but also like very thoughtfully done um and then the story she's telling about the other young women that she's helping guide up the mountain are really moving as well so just like a very interesting balance of like survivor story empath- like empathetic memoir and sort of this like macho like climbing a mountain kind of thing like really interestingly like mashed together so i just think it's really fascinating i'm really excited about it uh in the shadow of the mountain a memoir of courage
0: by sylvia vasquez lovato can you imagine climbing a mountain nope i visited the channel islands with my wife's family over the summer and there was like i walked uphill for, like, a couple minutes. <laughs> and they left me behind.
1: Yeah. I was just like. <laughs> you would not get, yeah, you you would get left on Everest, I'm sure. I would as, get, as would I. As I would, would get I. left
0: at the base of Everest. I would just be like, <laughs> go on without me. I d- it was so steep. Oh, my gosh. Even remembering it. <laughs> and then they hiked it again later in the day. And I sat in the park, like, little picnic area and watched the island foxes steal trash. That sounds like a much better day. It was so much better. (laughs) (laughs) um, No, but like, gosh, mountain climbing. I mean, there's so many people who have died doing it. And I understand, Uh right? Like achievement, I guess. Like, you know, I feel good when I like win Minesweeper. (laughs) So I understand. But uh, it's a lot. Yeah. It's Mm -hmm. a lot. It is. And just the hubris, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway. All right. Let's talk about The line Becomes a River by Francisco Cantu. Did I talk about this recently since I finished reading it recently? Uh, I don't think so. Oh, thank God. I've told so many people about it. <laughs> but I was like, <laughs> did I talk about it on the podcast? And if anyone is at home being like, you did, you did talk about it. Well, buckle in because I'm going to talk about it again. So "Line Becomes a River by Francisco Cantu is uh, about it's split into two sections because the first part is when he worked for the border patrol. And the second part is after he quit the border patrol because he was having so many nightmares and was so stressed about the work he was doing that he started working at like a little coffee stand. And he met uh, a friend who was an immigrant from Mexico who then ended up getting deported. And so that is kind of what happened there. So the first half, I definitely did not understand what the border patrol was. And I thought it was like the people who, I don't I basically, I, it just kind of highlighted my ignorance about the border because I was like, you know, there's people at checkpoints and they like, check your papers. And that's what this guy did. And that's absolutely not it. He like, they have sensors in the desert and he, they would get tripped. And then he and, you know, his compatriots would go out and they would fa- try to find the people who trip the sensors, partially just because a lot of people die in the crossing um, Mm -hmm. because it's the desert and it's burning during the day and it's freezing at night and you if you run out of water you're kind of screwed and that's easy to do especially when you are crossing so many miles in order to make this extremely perilous journey so um, a lot of it was like catching these people putting them in like or sending them to like detention centers and in order to get processed and sent back to mexico or whichever um, South American or Latin American country they're from. So uh, so that first part is hard, but he kind of is just like, yeah, it's like my job and I was just doing it. And I had these nightmares, but it was okay. And then after he did the job for four years. And then after a while, it just became so much. He got transferred to a different part of it and he just was like, I can't do this. So that's the point where he quits. And then when he becomes friends with this man who goes to Mexico in order to visit his mother who is dying. So this man is undocumented. And when he comes back over the border, he gets caught and they're going to send him back. Uh, His family is all in America and he has he he's like, you know, contributing to the community and he has strong ties to his church and they put together this like. Really powerful case with all of this testimony of people being like, he is just such an asset to everyone and it doesn't matter. And he still gets sent back. So it's Francisco Cantu talking, who is himself, like his grandmother came from Mexico and his mother worked for the park service. And like, they just anyway, it's him talking about these two things, what it really is like out there in the desert, what the crossing is, the like, how much. The people who are crossing are obviously, like, sacrificing and going through in order to make it, and obviously it's extremely relevant, not just in terms of this has been happening for so long, but also just even in the, like, recent news from the last week or so, right, with this nonsense with the governors uh, Mm -hmm. sending immigrants it's very upsetting. Sorry. we can, <laughs> They've been sending some buses to Chicago, which in and of itself is fine. It's more that they are not telling anyone when people are arriving. And so there is no time to prepare any mm-hmm. resources and just being extremely uncooperative. And it's very upsetting because these are human lives. But anyway, okay, so... Again, just a very relevant, timely book. I thought it was really good. I did it as an audio book, which is read by the author, and he does a great job. So uh, The Line Becomes a River by Francisco Cantu. Glad you talked about that one. Yeah,
1: I remember I read it when it came out, but and at the time I thought, like, oh, this is, like, freshly relevant for the things that are happening, and it's something that it is, like, continues to be freshly relevant in different ways, but, yeah, like, a good look at what's. What the Border Patrol does, but then also like the story, like putting stories to particular human lives and what, how, how policies affect people. Excellent pick. All right. So uh, my next pick, uh, as I alluded to earlier, is Bad Mexicans, Race, Empire, and Revolution in the Borderlands by Kelly Lytle Hernandez. And so this book is the story of the Meganistas, which are a group of, uh, migrant rebels who helped launch the 1910 Mexican Revolution, uh, while they were in the United States. And so, um, so at the time, Mexican, uh, Mexico was, uh, ruled by a dictator, Porfino Diaz, who um, basically just sort of like turned the country over to people like uh, Rockefeller and other like huge U.S. Um, business leaders and stuff. And so that Mexico was like being taken over and there were, it was just a really bad situation. He was not a good dude. And so there was this group of uh, people in the United States being led by a, a man named Ricardo Flores Magon. The Meganistas were just, like, a whole rebel group of their, it says, journalists, miners, migrant workers, and others who organized uh, Mexican workers and dissidents to the Mexican Revolution cause. So they had to, like, in their quest to uh, take out the Diaz government, they had to avoid, like, U.S. departments. There was, like, the U.S. was trying to stop them, and Mexico was trying to stop them, and they were um, just... <laughs> Just a, a group trying to make that happen. So they lived in hiding. They used codes. They launched raids into Mexico, trying to take this dictator down. Until they finally helped, like kickstart the Mexican Revolution, which eventually did take down Diaz and installed a new um, new leadership in Mexico. There's stuff in there about how, like, the U.S. Postal Service tried to get at the Meganistas by allowing uh, U.S. law enforcement agencies to read their mail until they figured out what's going on and stopped them. Like, just a really interesting story that I had never heard of before. Um, I know, you know, a little bit about the Mexican Revolution, not very much at all, so that that there was this whole uh, support or whole whole thing happening in the United States to try and help kickstart that by people who were um upset with the regime and wanted change, I think is really interesting. Um, and so I'm excited that there's a book kind of digging into that and trying to show all of the um all of all of the efforts and work and uh things that uh, this group did. So uh that is Bad Mexicans,
0: Race, Empire and Revolution in the Borderlands by Kelly Little Hernandez. I love that. What is this episode where you're talking about stuff from like the early 1900s? <laughs> <I know. laughs> and um, I'm talking about sad things.
1: I don't know. It's uh, just a uh, just a time. Just
0: what a, a topsy turvy week this is. Okay. Oh, um, I'm gonna talk uh, again. It's it's about deportation. I'm so sorry, but it's. I feel like I don't know. Sometimes. I feel like we have themes that call to us mm-hmm. and it's like a subconscious thing and you suddenly are like, why am I watching so many movies with that guy from Home Alone? And you just, you don't know. Not Joe Pesci, the other one, but not that I've been doing that. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I, I think that, I don't know, I think with the news and everything, I've just been especially like, mm-hmm. why Why are we, why are we allowing this? Okay. So let's let's just talk about this. This is In the Country We Love, My Family Divided by Diane Guerrero with Michelle Burford. This came out in 2016, um, in May of 2016, which like that alone just bums me out. But anyway, so Diane Guerrero was in Orange is the New Black. If you remember, I recently, meaning like, I don't know, in the last few months, talked about a book by Selenius Leva and her sister, mm-hmm. who in Slade Slava is also an Orange is the New Black actor. And I just feel like Orange is the New Black people are doing really good work in the literary world, mm-hmm. which I know this came out like six years ago, but still worth talking about. So, okay. This is very focused. Um, if you're, if you're kind of like, Oh, I'd love to read about Diane Guerrero's time on Orange is the New Black. This is not really the book for you. This is very focused on her. Not not specifically her childhood, but she was born to um, Colombian immigrants who were undocumented. And when she was – when Diane was 14, she came home and her parents were gone. And they had been deported that day. Like, I don't – that alone, mm-hmm. right? It just, like, can't imagine that that's allowed to happen in that's gosh. Okay, anyway. So – The book itself is like her childhood, then that moment. And then what happened to her after that and what her life was like and what her relationship with her parents was like as they were so far away. And, you know, she's living this life in America and advocating for undocumented immigrants and people who are also just impacted by their immigration status. And she said that she wrote this book because she, she wished that she could have read, she could have read this kind of book when she was younger. Which I, when people do that kind of thing, right? Like, I wrote this book because I wish I had this book. Mm-hmm. I, I just, this just makes me a little squishy inside. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just, what a weird way of saying that. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, for me, not her. She's great. So this is, I, I would say it's a, while the line becomes a river is, more about, you know, Francisco Cantu talking about, like, this is how this impacted me, like, as someone who was on the other side of things, and then having, like, a friend. This is specifically, right, Diane Guerrero writing about her parents, and being the daughter of undocumented immigrants, and just what that did to her and her family. And these books are just important. I'm sorry. Uh, Again, doing hand gestures, they would enhance the experience right now. But... <laughs> It's fine. So this is in the country we love, my family divided by Diane Guerrero.
1: Yeah, I read that one. Not not when it came up, but a while back and yeah, it's it's very good. I know she did it with a ghostwriter, but like she's a very very good at describing her feelings and her experiences and it's I don't I don't know how you could read this one and not feel moved for like the kids, the, the citizens of undocumented parents who find themselves in a situation like this one it's heartbreaking so anyway those are some books uh, by latinx or latina authors to help celebrate hispanic heritage month i was a little maybe a bit of a downer on some of them but uh stories worth uh reading and celebrating i think regardless we'll
0: do we'll do more positive ones in the future
1: Yes, exactly. And just because it's negative doesn't mean it's not important to read and that that's a a good use of um, empathy and understanding of other people's life experiences. So,
0: Oh, that's a good point. Sorry, (laughs) it's been an emotional time.
1: (laughs) Yes, I I agree. All right. So with that, we will wrap up this episode as we normally do by talking about the books we're reading uh, right now at this very moment. Um, I am pretty far into at this point, uh, The Gene, and Intimate History by Siddhartha Mukherjee, uh, which is his book about the history of uh, our genes and genetic research. Um, and so he wrote um, The Emperor of All Maladies, which is a big biography of cancer that I really loved. This book is like 600 pages long about the history of genetics. And so it's one of those books that I sat on for a really long time because I thought, like, am I in the mood for this? Uh, and I... I don't know. I've just been in the mood to read some, like, big, chunky books. So I, I got this one from the library. And it is so great. I don't know why I waited so long to read it. It is it is excellent. He has this, like, amazing way of humanizing the people in the stories he's telling and really, like, getting at sort of their – how how they are as people and how – and he's doing this about, like, scientists and stuff that you, like, have heard about but maybe don't know exactly. Like, I don't know. I just feel like I have this, like, very empathetic view of Gregor Mendel for some reason after reading it. Like, yeah. and it's it's very funny and it's just, it's so good. I am just, I, I can't, it's just so good. The Gene, An Intimate History by Siddhartha Mukherjee.
0: Wow, that was a really good pitch for that book. I'm like, should we all go read The Gene?
1: I think maybe one of the reasons I sat on it was because one of the reasons I loved Emperor of All Maladies is because he he's a cancer doctor. And so and he's writing about cancer, he was telling stories about his patients and his own experiences as a researcher. And I thought, like, he's not in genetics. So how is he going to bring that same, like, sense of empathy and humanity into this other story? And, like, he has managed to do that with people who have been dead for hundreds of years. Um So I just – he's such a good – writer and I'm so impressed by that like ability to do that in a story that like could be very dry
0: yeah that's a skill yeah it's impressive um I am well I'm like 14 hours which is not even halfway through the (laughs) Hemmings's of Monticello which is really good but I've talked about it before so I'm going to talk about the office BFFs (laughs) Love it's it. it's so different. Um, by Jenna Fisher and Angela Kinsey. This is basically the book form of their podcast, uh, Office Ladies. <sighs> Love that. Yeah, and it's so it's like it'll be like Jenna, you know, says this, and then it's like Angela shares this, and them just talking about the office and their time on it and how they met and all this stuff. So it's cute. It's really light reading. <laughs> so. <laughs> Compared to, um, again, the Hemingses of Monticello, which I just got to the point where they're like, we don't know when Thomas Jefferson decided that he was going to try to have a relationship with Sally Hemings, who was 14 when she came over to Paris. Mm. Uh, and, right, yep. Mm-hmm. And his wife's half-sister. There's just so much. It's really horrifying. But uh, I feel like it's important history in terms of context for... People who wrote the founding documents of our country. Very true. Uh, right. So back to the office BFFs. So if you would like, <laughs> had a lot of sugar right before coming on to do this podcast. In case that <laughs> clarifies anything, I I like it in terms of again just like having like reading a few pages and being like, oh yeah, that was nice for the office uh, office BFFs, and also. You know, you get to read about, like, your favorite episodes and what was happening behind the scenes for those. I have the Funko Pop of Michael with his FedEx-wrapped foot. (laughs) <laughs> from the episode the injury which i believe jenna fisher says is her favorite and i also have i only have two office funkos and it's that one and then it's jan because i loved michael and jan back in the day and it's the funko of jan from the dinner party so she's holding a <laughs> glass of wine and also a candle from serenity by Jan. amazing uh the i feel like the injury and the dinner party are two of the best episodes they're, of the entire series
1: they're definitely like the most unhinged i think
0: Oh yeah, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Our amazing audio editing for this episode was done by Jen Zink. If you have a few minutes,
1: we'd love it if you take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. That helps people find us more easily. And while you're there, you can follow us so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. With that, I am Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast.